Okay, well, we're going to carry on in our, in our study through the book of Colossians. And this morning we open up chapter 2 of Colossians. And uh, we're going to be looking at the first 13 verses of the chapter. I entitled this particular Bible study, Burden for Youth. Appropriate, since they're all gone <laughs> at, at the youth group uh, retreat. But, uh, but this is an important topic, and Paul thought it was too. And, and when I refer to youth, obviously I, I, I could be referring to people of a tender age, preteens, teens, but also people who are young in the Lord. And that's more or less the way uh, it applies to what's going on with Paul and the Colossians. But think about this, because you've had the same experience I have had in the past two years. The past two years have shown us the influences that schools can bring to our children. And this has come into sharp focus because parents all of a sudden were at home while their children were learning at home through the internet and the like. And, and uh, they started to understand the kinds of things that their kids were being taught at public school. And so school board meetings erupted into angry exchanges and parents increasingly angered by the liberties that the school officials were taking with their children and teaching them things that were not okay with the parents. At the same time that we're seeing that going on in, in the grammar schools and junior highs and high schools, we're seeing that free speech on college and university campuses is rapidly disappearing, and that trend disproportionately affects the Christian worldview. These concerns are real. They are happening right now all around us, and they're especially troubling for parents of Christian kids, like you, like me, and grandparents as well. But the troubling thing for me is that recent studies indicate that parents themselves could be doing more at home to impart a Christian worldview to their children. There was a, uh, a study done this year, it was actually in the spring of this year, by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University, and that study showed that nine out of 10 parents of children under 13 embrace a, what you'd call a muddled worldview that mixes alternative kinds of life philosophies, most of which have little to do with biblical truth. And the latest finding of the American Worldview Inventory of 2022, which was conducted by George Barna, you're probably familiar with his name, it shows that two-thirds of parents of preteens claim to be Christian, but only 2% of those actually have a Christian worldview. I think this was a statistic that Brittany brought out in our Live Not By Lies conference. Kids are not getting indoctrinated into a Christian worldview at home. And so we shouldn't be surprised if they wholeheartedly embrace a lot of decidedly anti-Christian views that are coming across uh, in the various school settings that they're in. We, as the church, and also as parents and grandparents, we should have a burden for the spiritual welfare of this younger generation. We should have a full understanding of the challenges that they face. Thank God for COVID, for the quarantines, because many of us would never have known the kinds of things that kids are being exposed to. And we have to understand that kids, they have a tender heart, they have tender minds, and they are literally going into a cage fight 
with people who have mastered their deception rather better than many of our kids have mastered their faith. Well, we can learn a great deal about how to deal with this burden of spiritual warfare that our kids are being subjected to through the Apostle Paul. Because Paul considered the Colossians to be his children in the faith. Now, the Colossians were brought into the faith, uh, into Christ, through men who had been trained and schooled by Paul. Paul himself did not have a hand in planting the Colossian church. But the men that he built up in the Lord were the ones that brought the faith to them. And Paul was agonizing from his prison cell over the vulnerability that these baby Christians had at the hands of false teachers who had come into that area of Asia Minor and were spreading all kinds of heresies. Many of these false teachers, ultimately what they taught would morph into what became known as Gnosticism. And we've talked about that in previous lessons. And what, what they were essentially doing was adding a lot of heretical doctrine to the simplicity of salvation through Jesus Christ. Great, faith in the grace of God through Christ's sacrifice as the sole means of salvation. And this was getting all muddled up in the heretical teachings that were being layered upon uh, the gospel. And so this morning, as we go through these 13 chapters, we're going to first get an understanding for the nature of the burden that Paul had for these believers, because I believe we should be sharing that burden for our children and our grandchildren. And then secondly, he, he highlights the dangers that these young people face. And then finally, he provides some remedy for the deception that was coming at these young believers. And, and I hope that you'll, uh, you'll, you'll pay close attention to this next week, which kind of follows on from what we're talking about this week. We're, we're going to see even more with more clarity the kinds of deceptions that can beguile our kids because they were at work against the Colossians as well. So I ask if you would please stand with me. And here's what we're going to do. Uh, I know the, the lesson is defined as uh, verses 1 through 13 of chapter 2. But for right now, I want to actually go back and read verses 28 and 9 of chapter 1 because they introduce this topic and then the first three verses in chapter 2. So picking up in verse 28 of chapter 1 and reading over to verse 3 of chapter 2, here's what we read. Him, that is Jesus, we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily, for I want you to know what a great conflict or burden I have for you and those in Laodicea and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches and full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ and whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Let's pray. Lord, we gather here this morning to dip into that treasury of wisdom and knowledge. Lord, it all comes from Jesus. And you have codified so much of it in your word, Lord, because you want us to know these things, Lord. I pray this morning that as we sang earlier, you would open the eyes of our understanding, Lord. That you would be the king of our hearts this morning, Lord. 
that you would lead us and guide us through the power of your Holy Spirit, working in the truth of your word to edify and build us up in truth and to keep us from deception, Lord. As your minister this morning to bring these words to your precious people, I pray, Lord, that nothing would emanate from my heart or my lips, but that which you want these people to hear this morning. I ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, when we look at these two verses that... um, that we're at the end of chapter one, uh, you get a sense of the heavy burden that Paul has for these people. Uh, imagine how frustrating it must be for Paul, who was given so much truth from the Lord God, and he then entrusted, as he would have later advise Timothy to do, entrusted these words to faithful men who would teach others. But he never had a chance to meet the Colossians. And he knew the kinds of individuals that were now polluting their understanding of truth because those same kinds of individuals literally followed him around on his missionary journeys. And what they were bringing had all manner of different heretical doctrines in it. It was kind of a combination of of Eastern mysticism and, and, uh, and Greek stoicism and, and Jewish legalism And it was really just a mishmash blend of all the kinds of things that keep people even today from seeing Jesus Christ. And that is works. You must work. You must do. You must know what we know. If you don't have this special knowledge, why you cannot stand before a holy God. And these things were coming at him. And so he's speaking to them from the burden that he has as a minister of the gospel, and a minister of the gospel is somebody who should be earnestly preaching the word, but also providing warning. Warning to the flock concerning false teaching. You know, if you think about a pastor as a shepherd, shepherds really have two principal duties relative to the sheep. They lead them to the place where they can be fed, And they protect them from predators. That's the way I see my job. I'm feeding you now. When we have Bible studies, this is an opportunity for you to feed on the word of God. But also as part of the role that, um, that I take, it is that I want to provide protection. And believe me, I take no pleasure sometimes when I point out heretical teaching that is under the big tent the greater Christian church, because there's an awful lot of it coming at us in this present day. This is why you'll often hear me poke at the wealth, health, prosperity gospel, because I've seen it. I saw it in India. I saw how that that strain of teaching that tells people that if they have enough faith, the heaven will do their bidding. I've seen how this can undermine and even destroy the faith of people who find themselves in a trial or find themselves with a great desire for something, they bring it before the Lord. It doesn't happen the way they pray for it. And then they just pretty much jettison all of Christianity as being something that has no power in it whatsoever. And it's all because they were misled. I see people whose faith in God is is depreciated by the notion that they must work for right standing before God. We do good works not be, in order to be saved. Of course, we do good works because we honor our king and we follow his commands. But those who carry the burden of needing to work through 
in order to save themselves, have a very low view of Jesus, and therefore he's not central to their lives. And so we see the prayer that Paul is praying here. He's praying, uh, first of all, for their maturity. Look at verses 1 and 3. For I want you to know what great conflict or burden I have for you and and those in Laodicea. Now, Laodicea, we know because uh, in chapter 3, I believe it is of Revelation, there's a, a letter specifically written to them by the Lord. This was what was known as the lukewarm church. Remember the Lord said vis-a-vis Laodicea that you are neither hot nor cold but lukewarm and so I vomit you out of my mouth. I would rather you be hot or cold than lukewarm. They were a church going through the motions and we can only wonder how much of that lukewarmness came to them or developed in them because of the heretical doctrines that were spun before them by false teachers. Laodicea was only about nine miles away from Colossae and so It was a region that had these churches that Paul had a burden for. And his prayer is kind of outlined there. Um, He he says in verse 1 that he hasn't seen these believers in the faith, uh, in the flesh, but he prays that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. Now, he's praying two things. And this is something that, frankly, I pray over this church all the time. First of all, he's praying for their maturity. You know, when you preach to the lost, the objective of that preaching is to bring them to salvation. But most Sundays, I'm preaching at large here, mostly to believers. And the objective of preaching to believers It's not salvation because you're already saved. It's maturity. It's coming into a more perfect understanding of the Lord God and a closer relationship with him. And one of the aspects of maturity, you know when you're dealing with mature believers, because they have a unity about themselves. As Paul describes it, their hearts are knit together in love. You know, You can tell when you're in a church where the believers are not very mature because it's rife with conflict, with divisions. Churches split all the time. And I mean, there's a lot of reasons why a church might split. But very often it's because there are undernourished Christians in the midst. And in that undernourished state, they they can very easily fall into carnality. And carnality will get you looking at yourself rather than the Lord. And when you're looking at yourself, you're overly concerned with your rights, how you were treated. Uh, They said this and that offended me. I'm offended. Okay, so you're offended. Get over it. (laughs) Nothing happens when you get offended. You just deal with it internally and you move on. But the, the world in which we live is so hypersensitive. And very often, and this is especially true for pastors, very often people are offended with you. You have no idea why. And it might be because of something you said that wasn't necessarily directed at them. Or or maybe they misunderstood what was said, but nevertheless, they're offended. And all of a sudden, that roils in the church. It starts to boil over. Now, other people are offended, and they're offended because you're offended. (laughs) Pretty soon, I'm offended. Everybody's offended. Well, this is the kind of thing that happens when maturity is lacking, because when maturity is present, and we've all had this experience where you walk into a church 
And you say, man, the spirit of God was just all over that place. It's just full of love. I have that experience every Sunday. Coming in here amongst you guys. The spirit of God is present. The love of the saints is evident. And you can come in here as a, as a newbie. And, and I hope, it is my prayer for our church, that when somebody walks into the doors of this church, you know, they don't get this real syrupy, you know, sappy, disingenuous sort of greeting that kind of makes you uncomfortable. But, but there should be a genuine showing of concern, of gladness that this person is in our midst, of of welcoming into the community and this is something that he he prays would be true about their hearts because uh, unity is a great sign of being a healthy body isn't it you know uh, one of the great scourges on health in our day physical health is cancer cancer comes into a body and it literally is the body fighting itself And equally, when we allow carnality to come into our midst because of lack of maturity, we start to have dysfunction within the body. On the other hand, when the body is mature and in good health, there's unity. The body is working in a coordinated fashion. And he's praying for that. He also prays, he says there in verse 2, being encouraged, knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. Now you see this this reference to the mystery of God a number of times in Scripture. And, And there's a lot of layers to that mystery of God. At the top layer is this. Unknown in previous generations until revealed in the Gospels was God's plan that he would unite everything in Christ that all things would ultimately be united in Christ and be reconciled in Christ, that the church itself would be a unified body that is composed both of Jew and Gentile. But within and and, and consumed within that greater mystery is, is the mystery of Christ, the hypostatic union, as theologians call it, the fact that Jesus Christ is both fully divine and never ceased to be fully divine and yet came to earth in the incarnation born of Mary and of the Holy Spirit into human flesh such that he is as human as you or I. Although he does not possess the sin nature that we do, he is as human in his physiology as you and I. And this is something that is revolutionary to the ears of the people it's revolutionary to people now but it was revolutionary to the people of that time and there was rampant heretical teaching that both attacked Jesus as deity and attacked Jesus as humanity the Gnostics believed that all matter was evil and therefore there was no way that Jesus Christ could have come in the flesh because he would have been the definition of evil, which he clearly wasn't. And so they assaulted the humanity of Jesus Christ. Those who had more of a Greek persuasion, they attacked the deity of Jesus Christ, as did uh, many of the unbelieving Jews of the day. And these were the, this aspect of Jesus' nature, fully human, fully God, was under constant attack. So severe was it uh, in John, John's first epistle, 1 John 4, 
He literally says that those who would deny that Jesus Christ came in the flesh possess the spirit of Antichrist. And so Paul in his prayer and his burden for these people, hey, I want to see you united together, but I want you to understand the mysteries, the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, the Father's plan to bring reconciliation of humanity through Jesus Christ. The mystery of Christ being fully human, being fully God. He had to be both in order to win our salvation. Had he not been human, he could never be the perfect sacrifice. And so these are things that Paul is anxious to protect and burdened by the assault that's on these very central foundational doctrines. That is the life of the believer. He, he states another thing that was also a burden of his, which is in verse 3. As he's referring to Christ, he says, In Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, again, I could hear him speaking directly to the Greek point of view or the Greek influence on these people because Greeks, the Greek mentality, and you're saying, wait a minute, isn't this the time of the Romans? It is. But the Greek culture, the Greek learning was dominant in the Roman Empire. You know, the, the Greeks lost their place as rulers of the world, but they never lost their influence when it came to philosophy, when it came to science, when it came to Literature, I mean, their influence was gigantic. And I'm here to tell you that a lot of the uh, educational philosophies of our day go right back to Plato and Aristotle. I mean, they, they, are, they are that influential and they are very much ingrained into the educational philosophies of modern day. And so he wants them to know that all wisdom... All knowledge emanates from Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was not just a really smart man. He was not just a guy with a lot of wisdom. He was not a guy that you could go to in literature and say, wow, that was a great story. I learned something from that. Paul was very, very adamant that they know that all wisdom, all truth emanates from a single source and that is Jesus Christ. And this is one of the things that we have to be careful about relative to public education. I'll just go ahead and say it. And please understand, this is not a harangue against all that comes through a public education. This is not a, a cautionary word to say, do not allow your kids to be educated in public schools or in public universities. Because there's, there's a, a lot of good that comes through those channels. But, but the one thing we have to understand as Christian parents is that nothing they're going to learn in a, in a public school setting or in a public university is going to fortify or further their maturity in Christ. And to be quite honest, an awful lot of what they may encounter is going to undermine their maturity in Christ. And so... We as parents and grandparents, we need to work double time to help them have that component of their learning together with all of the other great things that they could learn in a public school or in a public university. Okay? I mean, it requires us to be the gatekeepers of what they receive concerning 
the Lord, what they, what they understand concerning the Bible. And in this day and age, I would submit that it probably takes a lot more effort now than maybe it did 100 years ago. Because I think right now there is a def definite bias against the Christian worldview on campuses. And I personally believe we will see that growing very dramatically in the coming years. But here's the thing. See, if our kids, if our kids go into the public setting of education and, and they, they, they lose the idea that Jesus is the only way to reconciliation with God. And instead, they start to uh, glom on to what the world would teach is that, okay, if you're a Christian, Jesus is a way, but there are other ways. If he's not the only way, and he's merely a way, sooner or later, your kids will say, no way, and they will have nothing to do with Christianity. And that's because his, if Jesus is only a way, first of all, it makes most of the gospel a nonsense. Why would God, who is in the glory of heaven, decide to put on one of these, <laughs> come to earth, die a torturous death on account of others who actually hate him, only to be a way? If it was only a way, Jesus might just say, well, I'll, I'll, I'll let Buddha take care of that. I'll, I'll let Muhammad take care of that. I'll just, you know, they'll find their way. So, so to believe that he's only a way leaves the door open to just reject the whole thing because really, frankly, in that, cast in that manner, the gospel's a nonsense. And this is why so many young people who have been brought up in Christian homes abandon their faith when they get to secondary education because they have a low view of Christ. They don't see him as the repository of truth. In fact, the world is working double time to help people to believe that truth is relative. How else could we explain that people now in the 21st century can, can choose their own gender? This was a settled science for 6,000 years. But today, through a mere act of volition, you can change everything about what you've been created to be. The only way you get there from where we were not that many years ago, is to embrace the idea of moral and even biological relativism. Now, all of a sudden, truth is decided solely by the perspective of the actor. And so if it's my person, my gender or whatever, then truth relative to me is determined by my point of view. This, has this is proof that we have completely jettisoned Jesus as what he says there in verse 3. Verse three All treasures of wisdom and knowledge. God created them, male and female, he created them in his image. That's the truth. And yet it's under assault. Now he describes the dangers just in a summary fashion here. We'll see a little bit more of this next week. But in verses 4 and 8, I'm going to take these a little bit out of sequence. Verse 4 and verse 8. Let's look at verse 4. He says, Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Now we have to understand that there is an awful lot of people in the world who are committed to imposing 
a different truth on people in general, but most especially young people, because they're most impressionable. If you can indoctrinate, this is this, and by the way, indoctrination is used as an evil word. Oh, you're indoctrinating them. Hey, look, everybody is about indoctrinating people into something, right? If you're not indoctrinating, indoctrinating your kids into something positive, guaranteed there's plenty of people lined up ready to indoctrinate them in something decidedly harmful. And it's happening all the time. Where do these people come from? Well, Scripture tells us. John chapter 8, verse 44 tells us Satan is a liar and the father of it. Satan is the author of lies. See, this is something we sometimes forget. We have an active enemy, a being who is enormously powerful, although not as powerful as God, but he is, he is thoroughly all in committed to the destruction of the lives of our young people. Thoroughly committed to it. By the way, he wants to see you dead too. But actually, he could cause you more pain by doing something to your children than he can to you. And he knows that. So we read in in 2 Corinthians 11, 14 and 15, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their works. See, what we're learning here is that Satan can use people He can take their predispositions and their ignorance of God and he can use that. And he can use that to appear before people as folks who are very committed to doing something good. And most of the most pernicious things that we are exposed to in our culture are described in terms that make them good. We we just saw somebody in our neighborhood flying a flag that Abortion saves lives. You're going to have to explain that one to me. But this is the way it works, is that, is that something that is very harmful is always wrapped in something very positive. And equally, a lot of the individuals who will approach with, with dangerous doctrine or with falsehood well, they're not going to jump out in front of young people wearing horns and a pitchfork. Uh, they're going to they're they're going to be they're going to be knowledgeable, reasonable, concerned for the welfare of the children. They're going to be like some of these Judaizers, as Paul would describe them, these people who profess Christianity. They're they're Jewish people that come from Judea and they hated what Paul was doing because he was teaching salvation by by faith um, through God's grace apprehended by faith. And this was this was an anathema to them that that, that people could 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 set aside the law and merely believe on Jesus Christ. And so they would they would come in into these places where there were Gentile audiences in Asia Minor, in Colossae, in, in Laodicea. They would appear very scholarly, very smart. They knew the scriptures backwards and forwards. And could you imagine a baby Christian in Laodicea or in Colossae who has one of these guys in front of them teaching them what's what's up here? Let me tell you what's up with your faith. And they would see this person literally as an angel of light. And this would be the way in which a lot of our young people who go into a public university see a professor. He's got a great reputation. Got a lot of 
diplomas on the wall that would verify that this is somebody who is very smart because he or she is in all matters, but not necessarily in the word of God. And so now this individual that your kid is looking up to and very smart, very qualified, very respected, and he's telling them that there is no God. The belief in God is an irrational fairy tale that weak people cling to because they can't reason through the way things really are. And this is what comes at our our kids. In verse 8, we see, he says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. When he speaks about this idea of being cheated by philosophy and empty deceit, according to traditions of men, basic principles of the world, imagine the, the educational setting that kids are facing in, in, in a public setting. First of all, they have the great weight of, of democracy. We, we have a, a default switch in our head that if everybody thinks something, it must be so. I've always found in my life that that's actually the opposite. Okay? If everybody's doing something, I'm skeptical. And what he's telling them here is, look, just as Jesus said, broad is the way, wide is the way that leads to destruction, and many are they who are on it. Narrow is the way that leads to salvation, and few there are that are on it. You see, there is a huge body of knowledge and tradition that opposes God. It started in the garden. And that has built up over the years. There's philosophies. Again, in, in my college years, I studied philosophy. And I, I got to read through some of the great works of philosophy over the centuries. And particularly as you came into the age of reason and how that particular period in time was a frontal assault on the, on the belief in God and particularly the Christian God, and there are volumes that are written on this. There, is, there are studies. There are uh, just a, a host of brilliant minds as the world would, would measure them who have spoken against the very things that we stand for. And these are the things that overwhelm young people when they get into a, a college or university setting. They come out of an environment in where, where they're exposed to the Lord in their homes they're exposed to the Lord in their churches. But if they are not diligent in what they are taking on board through those experiences, and if we as parents who have our kids in our house most days are not actively reinforcing the things of the Lord, then ultimately they come in with a very sort of superficial understanding of the Lord. They haven't gotten into the deeper truths. They haven't had the experience of seeing how all of Scripture is linked. They haven't understood that this is not a collection of 66 different discrete writings. This is a single narrative that, uh, that lays out God's plan for the redemption of humanity. And so they get in front of this massive tsunami of knowledge, of tradition, of philosophy, 
And they say, who am I to argue with this? How could this not be true? And mom and dad start to look pretty lame for insisting they go to church, insisting that they read the Bible. And this is, this is what he's, he's telling them about. If you would, just flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Because Paul gives a great explanation of, of this juxtaposition of, of the truth of Scripture and the way it's viewed by the world. And it resonates, I, I think it will resonate with you, picking up in verse 21 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says, for, and now he's speaking to the Corinthian church. These are people who were living in for, the former, well, they were living in Greece, essentially. So the, the, the philosophies, the traditions of the Greeks are seeped into them and into their society. And so he's speaking directly to them. He says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You start to get an understanding that the Lord knows full well that the traditions, the philosophies, the knowledge of mere humans is going to look at what we preach and just throw up their hands and laugh. You must be joking. This is what you're basing your life on? That's foolishness. Where's the proof? Where's the sign? God knows this. It's almost like a litmus test. That, that we would see the simplicity of the gospel. We're not preaching philosophical theories. We're not, we're not demonstrating truth through scientific formulas. We preach Christ and him crucified. We were in a position where we could not save ourselves. And the, and the wages of our sin is death. God loved us enough to send God, his son, into the world as human flesh that he might take upon his sinless life the sins of all of us miserable sinners, pay that price, die for those sins, and be raised again. And if we put our faith and trust in him, we are saved. And that to the world is total nonsense. But it doesn't make it false. What people choose to believe doesn't change what's actually true. And this is, this is what Paul is trying to get to with them. And I might just say, the first step down to the road of secularism with our kids is that whole topic of the origin of things. Where did we come from? Why are we here? What comes after this? Those are the three questions I posed to that high school audience that I spoke to in Manipur. India. If you believe, as is taught in our schools, that you are the result of a long billions of years string of random events that somehow create extraordinary order in spite of all of the laws of thermodynamics and you accidentally come into being, if you believe that, then how could you place much value on your, on your origin, on your purpose, and on your destiny. Because everything's an accident. Once you embrace that, 
why killing a baby in the womb is no big deal. It's no big deal. Humans are accidents anyway. And this is where this is where a lot of this begins. Now, moving finally to the remedy that he speaks of, let's look first at verses five through seven. Because the remedy is not hard to figure out. It's the word of God and the indwelling spirit. Look at verse 5. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith. And you therefore, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanks. Giving. Now, this idea of steadfastness in Christ, there's only one way that happens. God's only given us one resource. Well, two. One is the word of God, and the other is the spirit of God who lives in us, who is commissioned to lead us in the way of all truth. We should not only read the Bible occasionally, because many people admit to reading the Bible occasionally, but we need to study it as we're doing now. We need to apply it to our daily lives. Deceivers and false teachers do not usually display a burden for the lost. They almost exclusively direct their attention to people who claim Christ as Savior. Their desire is to change your mind about your Savior. This is why you can easily see that these individuals are working for the other team. To be steadfast in Christ as he describes here and walking in it is like being a member of an army that's dug into a hill. We're able to repel assault regardless of the direction it's coming from. You know, there are those that want to urge the church to take the flock through all of the the different heresies, to, to teach them about Islam, to teach them about Mormonism, to teach them about Jehovah's Witness and all that stuff. We have never taken that approach. What we do is we teach you deeply in the truth. Because if you know the truth deeply, you'll see deception when it comes. This is the same approach, by the way, that cashiers and tellers and banks are trained. They're not trained in every single aspect of of counterfeiting money. They're taught deeply in what a real genuine bill looks like. And if they see anything that doesn't look exactly like that, they reject it as false. That's what it means to be steadfast in Christ. He speaks about them being rooted. Look at verse 7, to be rooted in Christ. This, the imagery here is a, is a tree whose roots have sunk deeply into a place such that it provides that tree with stability and nourishment. This imagery comes right out of Psalm 1. The first three verses of Psalm 1 say this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season, whose leaf it shall also not wither. And whatever he does shall prosper. See, it it, it means to be rooted here. If you're rooted here, that's your best defense against deception. Rather to be 
a tree rooted as Psalm 1 speaks of rather than to be a tumbleweed as Ephesians 4.14 says that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Now he also says there in verse 7 that we should be built up and, and he's using here a, a building metaphor. Um, if we are built up in the faith, it means that, first of all, we have a strong foundation. And foundation is set when we first come to faith. It's that understanding that we are saved by grace and not of works. It's a gift of God, lest any should boast, as Ephesians chapter 2 tells us. And then on that foundation of Christ, you start to build the rest of the doctrine, I, I, when I was in my, well, in the year I took between college and law school, I worked as a laborer for my uncle's mason business. And so I got an understanding of how buildings are built from the ground up. Uh, those blocks are really heavy that they use in the foundation and the cement is really heavy. And sometimes you have to wheelbarrow cement to get it to the right place for footings and all that is really heavy. And so there was a lot that went into building the foundation of a building. And no mason that I ever saw or anyone that's in their right mind would lay that foundation, then disassemble it and lay it again, then disassemble it and lay it again. No, you lay the foundation, then you start to build course upon course of truth, of, of, of further doctrine that embellishes and and fortifies your faith. And so this is what he's, he's urging them is to build on what you know. To, to start to learn the promises of God, not only in the here and now, but what's to come in the future. And then he speaks uh, in verses uh, 9 through 13 about the, the all-sufficiency of Christ. He says there in verse 9, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are completed him who is the head of all principality and power. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you being dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh he has made alive together with him having forgiven you all trespasses. Again here, you can imagine he's speaking against the legalism that was probably put upon them maybe by some of these Judaizers to try and convince them that no, you still need to be cognizant of and obedient to the law, which would, acquire, which would require physical circumcision, which would require respecting other aspects of the law. And he's clearly telling them that in Christ dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That is to say that we could imagine that Christ and faith in Christ is all sufficient because he is the full representation of God. You're complete in him. He is, he is the head in, over all principalities and powers. And then he, he speaks about this circumcision idea. Now we know that circumcision was a physical rite that was given by God to the Jewish people to be an outward sign of an inward change of heart. And of course, it got corrupted over time so that the focus was merely on the physical act rather than on the change of heart. 
And when Paul starts to teach new Christians, he starts to help them understand that, wait a minute, what you really need to be paying attention to is the circumcision of your heart. What is that? Why, it's the cutting away of the fleshly nature that we have. It's the celebration of the salvation we have through Christ and Christ alone. And through him, we are raised to new life. And so that commitment is in itself, using the word figuratively, a circumcision of the heart. And all of that is granted to you through faith in Christ alone. And so he's back onto the theme of this great letter of the all-sufficiency, the preeminence of Jesus Christ. Without all of the other noise, without all of the layers of uh, different practices and philosophies. So this is where Paul is in his burden for these people. And I think it is so relevant for today. This is where we are. As we've seen in the last two years, the, the influences that have, that have really overtaken not only schools, but also society in general. That many of these things that used to be whispered in, 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 in corners are now front and center. And there's almost a demand on you and me to not only acknowledge them, but affirm them. We have to hold fast to the truth. But most importantly, we've got to pass it on to the next generation. I want to just leave you with this. This is a section of scripture that's very important to the Jewish people, but it's very important to us as well. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. You know, the Lord has laid out his, his commands to his people. And he says, and these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. We need to be vigilant with our children to give them a deep soak in their faith daily. If we fail to do that, you can rest assured or you could rest uncomfortably with the knowledge that there is no shortage of people who seek to literally beat the Jesus out of your kids, philosophically, religiously, intellectually. And they're being very effective at doing it. And so I hope you'll join me in that burden. And hopefully we can, we can bring the light of truth to our kids before it's too late. Let's go to the Father. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for this word. We thank you, God, for uh, the burden that Paul carried for his children in the Lord. And nothing is new under the sun, Lord. The same dangerous influences are there for our children. And therefore, the same burden applies to believers of this age. Lord, give us wisdom, give us knowledge, give us courage. Sometimes it takes courage to speak truth into the life of your kids when they're pushing back with the wisdom of the world. Fortify the parents and the grandparents in this place. Lord, let us not shrink from the stewardship you've given us for this next generation. We pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Enjoy your day.